All right, ladies and gentlemen, this is another episode of Off the Record Podcast, where we interview cool founders about their journey, about how they raise money, about how they are building their business and their app, their product. And today, our guest, she loves acro yoga and aerial silks communities. She's a New Jersey native and a business grad of Washington University in St. Louis. She's also a first-time co-founder of a video platform for businesses who record and send personalized videos to potential customers. It's called SenseSpark. Uh, Bethany, so nice to have you on the show. Welcome. Awesome. Thanks for having me here. Well, I want to ask you about acro yoga and how did you get into it? Because I mean, I can't ignore that fact. <laughs> yeah. Um, so it's, it's actually pretty random. I did venture for America after college and in part of the training camp, which is mostly about like startups and, you know, entrepreneurial things two of the fellows were randomly like, hey, let's teach you guys acro yoga. So this is like five years and I just did it. And it's super, super fun because you're kind of like, you're up in the air. Um, it's hard, it's fun. You're trying to like get new moves. So I did it that one time and then um, got really into it. When I moved to San Antonio, I found um, an acro community and now I do it all the time with my fiance. And um, I mean, we're still, we're still pretty amateur, but it's a lot of fun and definitely a nice escape from startups a little bit to just be like, I need to balance myself in the air. And if I get distracted, I'll fall. It's, it's really cool to do something that does not involve internet, doesn't have a screen and you just kind of like, it's a different thing, right? So like different feeling. Exactly. And it's like good for your body to move because if I'm just working, like, especially with the pandemic, there's been like multiple days where I just have not even like not left my apartment, like barely stood up. So to have something where I can kind of like stretch out my back is probably like going to keep me alive a lot longer because I sit so much in front of the computer now. Like all of us, it's all about that exercise, but also make it non-boring. Yeah. Now, before we dive into the your whole journey as, as a founder, what is SenseBark for the listeners? What do you do? How does it work? Yeah, so SenseBark is a video messaging platform for businesses to record and share personalized videos with customers. Um, so you can use these videos at different points in the customer journey um, from sales outreach to customer onboarding to customer support. And what's cool about SenseBark is you can not only record and share your videos with customers, but you can also request videos back from them. So if you need to get like customer testimonials or you're supporting them and wanna see what's going on, then you can just send them a link and they can record a video and it, it goes back to you as well. So it's this two way um, conversational video to help businesses um, just kind of engage their customers and bridge the gap between email and Zoom. Mm. And how is it, um, how is it, uh, Bethany, like, let, let's say if we look at um, something like Vidyard, where they have mm -hmm. this tool to record yourself, and I'm only vaguely familiar, just for the yeah. record, I'm not like, I haven't used it too much, I know just a little bit, where they have an extension, you, you record yourself, you have a link, you post it. You do so much more, but how is it like, how is it different or what's the, like the use case, uh, behind that? Yeah. So there's definitely a lot of similarities, especially when it comes to recording and sharing videos. But when we look at like the best way for businesses to be able to communicate, we see that there's often a lot of silos in an organization between like sales and marketing and support. And so we want to bridge that gap and bring those teams together with more collaborative video. So especially compared to Vidyard, like we'll help you kind of make sure sales can get the right videos for marketing, marketing can automate emails on behalf of the sales team, um, and everyone can access each other's content. 
And then um, we also have the conversational aspect. So it's not just about sending videos to customers, but also requesting video. So it's a lot more two-way cross-functional, um, which I think is the future of communication, right? It's not just one-to-one -one or like me sending something to you. It's hearing what you have to say and then responding and going more back and forth. Right. So, so effectively, it's like Slack for video. Because like, I think a big part of what you're doing is internal, which is important. But then you, you have also the customer communication, but it's like back and forth, synchronous video communication. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Especially with that back and forth. And we see, like we look at companies like Figma, um, who really kind of revolutionized their space by making things more collaborative and knowing like, hey, the designer is not the only one involved in the design process. And that's how we see it too, where it's like the person who's the the, the most customer facing, like that salesperson who's like on the front lines, they're not really the only one talking to customers. There's been a level getting there of like, you know, marketing collateral and kind of like best practices to pitch and things like that. And so we're trying to make sure that all of the different voices that are important are able to be involved at that final step. I find, especially right now with all this, us being remote, it is sometimes there's just no way you can talk to people on just text message on Slack. It's just not possible. It doesn't really cover what you want to say. But at the same time, maybe you can jump on Zoom because maybe they're in different time zone. Uh, so what I do, and I know it's super archaic and like very old school, I, I record myself on QuickTime video and then I drop it into Slack. Most, most of the time I don't get the message back just because nobody else wants to do it. But it would be really cool if we had like a video chat. Yeah, you should use SenseBark. You can send the videos right in, right in Slack and then you'll actually see if people watch them or not because there's a lot more data. So then if you're recording a video and sharing it in Slack, be like, oh, this person watched it. Like my boss didn't though, what's wrong? Like, I need that, I need oh. that honestly, seriously. Cause that's, that makes a big difference, especially now. Like it's pretty, pretty important. Now, yeah. I wanted to ask you, how did you come up with that idea? What, what was the, what was it like to, at some point you had this idea, hey, like SensePark. Can you still hear me actually? Let's make oh. oh, there was something, there was a bit of a drop off, but it's fine. Well, uh, yeah, there was a slight lag, but Zoom is pretty notorious for that. Sorry, I missed the last thing you said though. I think you froze. Yeah, so that's cool, that's cool. What I was gonna say is, so I wanna talk about your idea. How did you come up with the whole journey or how did you come up with the idea of built SensePark? What was it? At what point did you have an idea like, hey, this is this is really cool. I think it's important for me to to start it. Yeah. So my co-founder and I have worked together for a long time. Actually, we've gone, we've worked at two other startups before founding SenseBark. And it was at our last startup, which was also in the video space, but more about like internal um, training and education. And we were trying to use video to communicate with customers. I was running marketing, my co-founder was running product and design. And so we knew that video is super powerful when you talk to customers, they love getting it, you're able to show a lot more um, and also just be more asynchronous, especially when you can't meet in person and you, you know don't wanna spend so much time on Zoom. So we were trying to kind of use existing software for customer communication, but found that there was a lot of limitations one in just the way it looked like as a marketer, I wanted to make sure everything was super polished, super on brand. Um, I could track everything and have it all integrated in my systems. And then also we wanted to make sure that we could um, like 
collaborate with other team members. So I was trying to send some videos on behalf of the sales team. And there was just a lot of friction there in terms of like requesting the videos from them, following up, making sure I had the right content. Um, so we, we decided, you know, it made sense if we were having these problems, other people, should, you know, were too. And so we ended up um, leaving just over two years ago to go full-time with SenseBark and create, you know, a customer facing video platform. Wow. That's, uh, and you, at that, at that point when you like, Hey, this is a big problem, or it does seem to be like a big problem that others are having. Did you had a conversation? Like how many people did you speak to saying, Hey, like, are you, do you, do you see the same thing or are we crazy? Well, so this is the funny thing is we, we spoke to a lot of people, but most people were like, I don't want to use video. <laughs> so why we did it, I don't know. But like we talked to a lot of people, they're like, oh, I don't want to be on video. It's unprofessional. My customers don't want to see me on video because this was over two years ago. This was before COVID. And we're like, especially my co-founder, we're like, no, like you should be on video. Even if it's a little uncomfortable at first, like you need to do it. You need to start building these relationships and have them be more face forward. Like when was the last time that you've had a good relationship with someone that you've never seen their face. Like, this is really important. Um, so we started working on it, even though we probably talked to a hundred people and most of them were like, yeah, I don't really want to use video. Um, but the world's changed a lot in the past couple of years, for sure. I, I'm honestly, I, when I speak to people who say like, who are not on video, I don't know what to do to put them on video. They're like so resistant. They're like, oh my God, I'm going to be killed right now. Yeah. I mean, it's funny, like how, like, I don't know, like how some people are so opposed to it. So what we've tried to do is just make it as easy as possible. We do a lot of things to like automatically make your video look better. And also we found that people who are uncomfortable with their face on camera are usually okay having their voice be there. So we started doing a lot more with screen recording. So it's like, it's a little bit more personal, but it's more of like easing into it. Like, okay, right. before you record your face, you know, just talk over a screen recording and kind of explain how something should work. Um, but I think it, it, especially when it comes to building relationships, you, you need to at some point put your face on camera and. and well, you got to come out. You got to come out of the, whatever you're, whatever you're doing, meet people in person or video. Okay. You know, the interesting part about what you just said was you had so many people who said that's a bad idea and we didn't have COVID yet you went ahead. How did you decide like, Hey, you know what? I get it, but I think it's still the right thing to do. Build a company. Yeah. So there was a couple things like one, we leaned into the data. So we knew that even if people are saying they don't want to use video, like we had a couple people that were willing to run AB tests with us and when send videos out to their customers and kind of test out not having a video versus having a video. And the engagement was consistently like 300% higher when there's video. So we were like, you know, even if people are a little uncomfortable, we could probably convince them because they're going to want these results. And so that, that was actually like our original starting point. Like we found enough people that would test and just really leaned on like, you know, three times more engagement, um, you should do it. And that, I, to be honest, I don't know if that would have worked because I, I think the more I like learn about like people and sales in general, like you're never going to, if someone doesn't want to do something, you're never going to convince them with logic. Like that just- Especially salespeople. Oh yeah, <laughs> exactly. Right. Like a lot of it is like how you feel. And, and I think that's an important thing to lean into is like, how do you make people feel? And that, that is more important than what results you're going to get. It's more like, 
how do we make sure they feel good on video and not just know that it's working, but feel bad about it. Um, but that was our initial, yeah, our initial test. And then, um, and now I think people have just gotten a lot more comfortable. So luckily that's not really an issue anymore. Yeah, I think you had a big, I mean, everybody who's doing any kind of video, uh, including probably YouTubers, I know they're not related in any sense, but they, everybody benefited from the video, from the, from the lockdown. Yeah. Um, I was going to ask you, so how did you move on to the MVP kind of, kind of process? You, I assume you kind of built some kind of uh, demo prototype uh, and what was it like? What did you do? Yeah, so looking back, so we've always taken this kind of strategy of, um, uh, I don't know if this is like a common framework or something that we randomly stumbled upon, but uh, it's called rapid hypothesis testing. And so we're always trying to find like, what is the riskiest assumption that we're making about our business and how do we validate that as quickly as possible with an MVP? So starting out, like one of the risky assumptions was like, is this gonna work? And then it became more like, will people use it? Um, and that's kind of like how we've thought about it. Like, what is the main thing that we need to like test? And then how do we make sure our MVP test that? So even before we built the full platform and even now, like, you know, we have over, we have over 7,000 users and I'm still like, this is, this is 5% of what we want to do. It's, it's really powerful for like a couple of use cases, but it's not the whole thing we're trying to build, but that's the way we think about it is like, what do we need to make sure that people have? So starting out, it was, um, especially because we were worried about people using it, we focused on um, just being able to record videos of yourself and then send them through email, which is a main channel. And then we kind of built it out to be like, it's not just email, you can send videos on LinkedIn, you can send them in Slack, you can send them on other channels. Um, then we built in screen recording, so you could share a screen too. And then we built the ability to request videos. So now when you look at SenseBark, it's, you can send the videos and you can request them back. Um, but it all is meant to work within like your Slack or intercom or other channels. So, you know, that's kind of to see like, hey, do people want back and forth video? And if they do, then we might build out more of our own messaging platform as well. But we're just trying to figure out, you know, what do people want? What will they actually use? What makes the most sense? Um, and what can we get to market really soon? How did you look at, um, uh, at, um kind of expanding the feature set? Was it more based on your feeling of, uh, hey, this is, this is like the logical next step? Uh, or was it more pure customer feedback or both? So I think early on, it has to just be what you want it to be. And then once you've built that core product, customer feedback comes into play. And otherwise, you end up kind of on a weird path. So like what we did that I'd say was like not good was at first when we only released screen recording, the types of, or sorry, when we only released face recording, the customers we got at first were not really who we wanted to be our main customers because we always knew we were building this for SaaS and we wanted our customers to be B2B. But when we only had like half the feature set, the people using it were not SaaS people because they needed to record their software. They were different use cases. And so if we listened to them like too much, we would have built a, a product that was more about like nonprofits or, um, or even like, it was more like education yeah. and it wasn't really where we wanted to go. So I think that like, you have to kind of start with an initial, initial assumption of like, what is the problem you're trying to solve for this type of person and then build that. And then it can be more customer request driven. But if you only build half of what you want, then you're only gonna, you're not gonna be able to serve your actual ideal customers. And then you'll kind of just like end up 
like optimizing over here instead of optimizing where you're going. That makes sense. Uh, yeah, hundred percent. We speak to a lot of founders and, and what does come many times across is that they say, you know, when you're building the first version of the product, well, you want to make sure that it is better than what exists, what exists on the market. But at the same time, you can build everything. You want to have this one feature that works from end to end. So it's not like the, the bicycle on like one wheel. It's like sort of like bike on two, but it's like it, that there's this one really key thing. How, how did you do that? Yeah, no, that that's a great point. So definitely you want the the kind of the skateboard before the bicycle. One thing that's also interesting that we've thought about in that place is like, you sometimes want to build what's, or the way we thought about it was we wanted to build what was different from our competitors, even before we built all the things that were the same that people care about. So when you look at like Loom and Vidyard who are kind of our biggest competitors in the space, we built the ability to request videos from other customers very early, like a year ago. And we're still kind of, you know, optimizing it and refining it. But we built that, that was super different from them to make sure people would want it. Even before we built kind of some basic analytics and CRM integrations that we knew people wanted, um, but we, but like our competitors had it. So it, it's kind of like, you wanna, you wanna like make your claim over here to be like, well, let's make sure that this is gonna be a big enough differentiator. And so right now we're kind of losing some customers because they're like, oh, we need the CRM integrations. I stand by the decision that we we're right to do request video first because we found that huge opportunity to like lean into it. Um, so I think that's always tricky when you're starting out is to figure like, you know, do you build your differentiators first or do you build parity first? But if you just build parity, then you're talking to people and you're like, hey, we built this platform. And they're like, well, how are you different than what's out there? And you don't have anything to say. So you have to kind of build their differentiator, even if it means they're lacking some core features. Um, and then ideally just build it all as soon as possible. <laughs> <laughs> I, I honestly think it's a really dumb idea um, to just build the parody because it's like you kind of become in this weird spot. Like, hey, we launched. Well, congrats. But like, like, okay, you have a cool logo, but like, what's the point of using the the the, the product? And uh, I, I think it's just totally missing the. It's like the wrong way to do it. I think it's harder probably to sell when you are you build the differentiator but you don't have the 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 expected features like CRM integration like it's probably you have a harder conversation but at the same time that's the whole point exactly and people will talk to you like you're so dumb they'll be like well don't you know that we need this and it's like of course I know you need it but like we'll build it as soon as we can well you know we had to figure out that this mattered to you before we built that so if I have people using it because they want this other feature and then begging for, you know, the common, the CRM integration, I still always feel good. Like we're on the right track and we'll get it out as soon as we can. Um, no, I, I don't want, I don't, I don't want to spend too much time on product, but one, one more, one more point before we move on, how did you, or what balance did you strike between talking to free users who are like, oh yeah, sure. I want that feature versus like paid folks to, from your core segment, let's say you have your SaaS users, you probably have some folks who are using product for free, like, hey, I definitely want it all sign up or like, I'd love these features versus people who are paying and they're like, hey, I want this, I want that. How did you, how did you account for uh, the feedback from both? Yeah, I mean, in general, we just try to talk to as many people as we can. Um, we like the thing is if someone's paying, they generally value the product more. So we've always been trying to like get people on a paid plan, even if it's like $15, like it's very cheap, but at least you're paying. So you kind of have that commitment. Um, but we'll look, we'll look at a lot of things. Also like 
in terms of like paid or free, like sometimes it matters more on the role. Like we'll sell to teams and if it's a user, like like an SDR or like an account exec or someone that's like more, um, like they're not a manager, they might not even really have a credit card they're able to spend, like they're able to put down. And so like, I still value their opinion a lot, um, but it'd be because I know like you're a user, if I was gonna sell to you, I'd sell to your boss anyway. So I think of that like also a little differently than how I think of like a manager who's not willing to pay because they want it for free. Cause I'm like, you don't even value it. But if someone like, so I guess to step back a bit, I really look at like usage um, more than I look at how much they're paying. Like if it's someone using the product every day, I like super value their feedback. If it's someone who like signed up, but they're like, oh, I'd only use it if you built this feature. I'm like, well, maybe you're not really who I should be listening to anyway. Um, so I, I take all the advice, like I take all the notes, but I'll, I'll know who it came from before we act on it and prior to I think there's also a lot of SaaS context. I know a lot of managers who, uh, first of all, they don't use the product. And second of all, they have no idea, like they just don't understand it and they don't care versus the actual, but they will pay for it. <laughs> that's, a, that's a bit of a paradox. <laughs> yeah. And then the actual users, they like love the product or they understand the product. But then sometimes they're not listened to by their boss who's like, okay, these guys offered us a deal. Well, let's sign them up, even though the product sucks. Or maybe it's the vice versa. So it's, it's, a, it's a tricky landscape. It's tricky, yeah. You, and you have to do both. And even the managers who might pay for the product, they'll cancel it if their people never use it. So that's actually how we get a lot of Vidyard customers is because they'll have bought Vidyard or gotten like a free plan. And then they'll be like, yeah, no one ever used Vidyard. And we're like, yeah, well, you use SunSpark, people actually use it because it's a lot more like user-friendly and fun to use. Um, so we, what, we're, what we try to do is we think of the people very separately. And for the users, we just try to make it as fun and engaging and like, how do we make them feel great sending out videos? And then for managers, we just try to show them like, your team's using it. Like you can see this dashboard, you know that, you know, all these people made a hundred videos in the last week. Um, they're getting clicks, they're getting engagement, they're using it. So we're just trying to show them, you know, we show right. the different ones. Yeah, yeah. Keep both folks happy, hopefully. <laughs> How did you go about acquiring your initial set of customers? Very curious. You spent quite a lot of time in marketing. You probably did a ton of hacks, grassroots, all kinds of things. Uh, with your, once you built, or I'm not going to say once you built, you probably started before because marketing kind of goes first. Or, you know what, maybe I shouldn't be answering that question. How did you think about acquiring customers? And maybe even before you had a product, or like, what was that, what was that kind of journey like? Yeah. So early on, like super early, it was really just kind of like begging people to use it. Like, I'm going to be honest. It was like, who do we know that like, we could be like, please use it. Cause like I said, we were just trying to get data to like show it worked. Um, so we were just, this, uh, when we started the company, we were in San Antonio. So we we're literally just going to people's offices with our computers being like, Hey, what are you doing? Oh, nothing important right now. Like make some videos. Um, and just like making it happen. And then, you know, some of them started getting crazy good results. Like I remember there was one company where they sent out one video and just like sold 700 or yeah, like $700,000 worth of product from a video. And they're like, Whoa, so we're like, okay, let's show the video to everyone, get more people using it. Um, so it was really like door to door. And then we made things a little bit better. Also then um, the pandemic happened and we started to get a lot more like pulse. It wasn't just us pushing and telling people that you should use video. People were looking for other video solutions. Um, early on, we built a lot of virality into the product. And our thought was like, oh, SunSpark's made to be shared. 
So if we put like video message by SendSpark or video request by SendSpark, that will get a lot more um, a lot more users. But what we didn't really account for is if you don't have that many people using it, it doesn't really matter. Like not that many people are going to see it. So we're like, okay, how do we get a lot more users and then let the viral loops take over? So just in January this year, we did a big launch on AppSumo um, that ended up blowing up into what they call like a monster campaign. And so we got a ton of users that way, which was fantastic and like really great product feedback. Um, but one thing that that they all wanted was like, hey, we want to remove the branding though. So we're like, oh, we're gonna get these viral loops. And people are like, well, we don't want we don't want to share with a video message by SenseBark on unless we're getting paid for it. So we're like, all right, well, we can do that. So then we just launched an affiliate system so they can keep those video message by SenseBark on. And but then you know, if people sign up, there's a referral system in place and they'll get a percentage of the subscription. Um, so we kind of did that to kind of get the most of the best of both worlds. Um, so now we're getting a lot more like virality from people sharing the videos and engaging with it, which I think is what we want. And, you know, as we're building out more, we're also looking into doing more like partnerships. We're about to announce one, um, with visible later this month about sending videos and investor updates, which is really cool. Um, so we're building more like integrations and partnerships. Um, but people don't want to partner with you until you have users. So it's kind of a, you know, a chicken and egg problem. Chicken and egg, I was going to say. <laughs> we're talking yeah. to some, like a partner. In, uh, this was September, so before we launched an app sumo, and I was talking to, to this, you know, cool video company, and I'm like, yeah, we should do a blog swap. It'll be so good for both of us. And they're like, well, how many users do you have? I'm like, so many, like 2,000. And they're like, yo, we have like 200,000. So, <laughs> and I'm like, is this a yes or no here? And they're like, yeah, we'll do it. But just so you know, and I'm like, <laughs> it's, it's, it's such a common thing when people like. And I think Gary V talked about it. Like you, you, it's not always a good idea to measure partnership by the users or by the followers. Like you, you don't know the little guy could be huge tomorrow or like in the month. Yeah. So that's actually what we did with them. They're like, okay, we're going to do a partnership with you today, but in one year you have to do, you have to send out another email about us when you're bigger. And we're like, deal, let's go. Um, <laughs> so now, now that we have a lot more users, we're able to do more there, but. Yeah, definitely. It's it's so much harder to get your your first ten customers, I think, than your first one hundred. Because once you start having use cases and examples and kind of more um, leverage in your end core, it's a lot easier to grow. But I think it really comes down to what you did super well is that you found that use case that that really thing that hey, I'm requesting a video, and and you had uh, whatever validation you had, and like you talk to people and like, hey, this is legit. I really want that. And then kind of start snowballing from there versus all oh, I think people try to enforce the need. Like it's not there. Like that, I think that's just harder than it's like, everything's too hard. You're kind of like trying to push it. Um, it's like too uphill. Yeah. And I think, I think it's like kind of tough because there's two things that are hard. One is becoming like being first in a market that no one really wants to use your product in because no one's heard of it before. Like that's really hard. And then it's also really hard to like differentiate and beat out competitors in an established market. So <laughs> I guess the answer is like nothing's easy because you're always kind of doing one or the other. So with us, we've kind of tried to do a bit of both where we're like, we have competitors and a, a real like established market for at least sending videos. And then we're trying to create our own space for requesting videos. And hopefully one of those two and ideally both resonate. Um, but yeah, it's, it's hard. Yeah, I think it, it's, you know, you talk to founders and um, 
um, we had a chance to speak to a lot of founders. And what comes up a lot of times is, especially for the serial founders, they say, hey, like, I've been doing this business and this is my third or fourth. And it never surprises me how hard it is each time. Like, it does not get easier. Like, some things do, but fundamentally, it's still that hard as it is, as, as it was the first time. Yeah. You got to wonder, like, why do people keep doing it? Like, I always think of, like, childbirth, which I, I don't have any kids, but from what I've heard, I'm like, man, I feel like if you have one kid, you'd be like, why would I ever do this to myself again? But people have more than one kid. People have more than one company. I don't know. I had that question too. Like I was thinking about like what, like I understand the money aspect, but I, I think um, like there's something else that they have just because it's kind of, um, I think our CEO said it was sadistic. <laughs> and I was like, hey, probably, how, how do you feel by the way about that? Like, how do you feel? You're the first time founder. What's it like for you been so far? Well, so I love it. But I think part of the reason I love it is because every day is like so different. Like the challenges I have today are so different from the ones I even had like last week. So I think that's, that's a really cool thing that even as it's super hard, it's like a surprise. And I think that's really fun. Like it doesn't get boring because you're talking to different people, you're trying different things, you're failing in different ways. Um, so I don't know. I mean, I love it. Like, I, I feel like I feel so lucky to have this opportunity. Like, I think a lot of people don't have it. And, and I feel like I'm like living the dream. Um, that's not to say it's easy, but you know, if it was easy, maybe it'd be boring. Yeah. And you also get like control, like you get to raise money like, you know, you have a, a different seat at the table. It's, it's also, I think if you like that, that's, that, that's a huge benefit. Yeah. Um, no, it's definitely cool to have that control. Like I think working at other companies, I, I'm sure like everyone's like this, you see decisions being made and you're like, oh, I would do it differently. And so it's kind of cool to be like, I would do it differently. Oh wait, I can, let's do it differently. Um, and then it's really cool to see those things work. And it's, it's really cool to then see like other people on the team be like, yeah, actually that's a really good idea. Like, let's do it. And, um, like even now, like at the beginning of May, I made a, a plan for the company that I thought was like really ambitious in terms of like growth goals and product goals. And I was just checking in on it this morning and we're like totally on track and maybe going to even like finish early. Like it's, it's barely halfway through the month now. And so it's like cool to be like, wow, like I had a plan for the beginning of the month and there's eight people on the team. So everyone's doing their part and making it happen. And um, I mean, that's so special. Like I wouldn't change it for anything. Yeah, totally. It's a cool feeling when you have, uh, when you're doing, marching towards the same goal with like a, with the troops that are as equally passionate or, or, or like super on board with what mm -hmm. you're doing. Now, I wanted to ask you, since we are on this topic, hiring, uh, we, you said something, we spoke with you the last time you said each member you bring in, I think this is what you said, each member you bring in, like they account for like 10% of effort of the whole company. And I'm like, that's a cool way of think about it. Cause that's true. Like they're fundamental um, links to the culture and to the whole organization. How did you think about that? How do you think about hiring in general and how did you progress through getting your first hires? Yeah. I mean, exactly that. Every person is so critical at an early stage. They're, you know, we're less than 10. So it's more than 10% of the companies, every person. Um, what we've done to date has been a lot of like referral based hiring um, or people like either people that my co-founder and I have worked with or people um, one of our founder friends recommended this developer who's on the team and been awesome. And then we, we hired like his mentor and brought him on and someone else they used to work with. That's been great. So that's what it's been um, 
up till now, which I think like early stage, you're just, it's so high risk to make like a bad hire because everyone matters so much. But if you only hire with a network, you run into other problems of like lack of diversity. Um, so now we're making a conscious effort to like hire people that we don't necessarily know personally um, to just make sure like, cause long-term you, you have to do that. Like you can't just hire former coworkers forever. Um, so we're, we're looking into Venture for America, which is an awesome organization that I did um, in San Antonio. So we're interviewing Venture for America fellows. And then um, actually one of our angel investors started a company called Intern from Home, which is a great way to find um, like really high, high quality interns. And then they just started doing like opening that up to entry level full-time roles. So we're also looking at um, Intern from Home. I don't know if it has a different name for the not interns. Um, so we're, we're doing more like a, like formal recruiting process now, uh, which I'm excited about, is, especially as we kind of do more of the sales, marketing, and support hires. And we're hiring now. So anyone listening, send me your resume. Right. Well, um, Bethany will include, but where do they need to go? Do, do you have a link? Hmm? Angelist. All of our jobs are in Angelist. Oh, Angelist, then search for SenseSpark, and uh, you're going to get the list. Yeah. And you'll see we have um, positions open for sales, marketing, and customer support. So if you see anything on Angelus. Well, there you go. Guys, go ahead and check and check them out if you happen to be listening to this. How do you how do you screen for a culture fit? This, I mean, obviously you look at referrals, huge part, definitely. But like what did you what do you look for? You know, have a conversation, people are on the same page, they have the maybe the same kind of interests as you i mean not same interest but like at least towards the your product towards the company towards your mission what do you look for and yes. or how do you how do you find that okay so i'm i'm gonna reveal my secret so i guess i shouldn't have told i feel like so i always ask when i'm interviewing people like what is your long term and really try to get it out so not just one question but to really figure out like what is your you're not super long-term goal but your next five-year goal and then see if SenseSpark is on track to help them get there. And so if they're like, hey, my long-term goal is to create my own like magazine company. I'm like, SenseSpark's not gonna help you get there. Like, it just isn't, you know, like maybe cause you're learning about entrepreneurship but if they're like, hey, I really wanna become like an amazing product person or I wanna start my own, you know, B2B startup. And I'm like, I can see how like doing kind of all kinds of like this position is gonna help you get there. But that's really what I'm trying to figure out is like if this job is aligned with their interests and their goals for themselves, it's probably going to be a good fit for them because they're, they're, as they're working for the company, they're also working for themselves. But I never want anyone to be in a position where they're trying to decide if like they should work or do something good for themselves and it's a conflict. So that's like the ultimate thing I'm looking for is just that, that value alignment. Um, and I think if that's there, everything else kind of falls into place. Like I think culture is is like a very, um, I think the cool thing about it is it like evolves too with the different people. So like, you know, as we add new people, our, our culture changes, but the, the most important thing is like that long-term value alignment. I've heard this really cool um, interview hack, probably you want to call it David Cancel, the CEO of Drift. He was telling, uh, and it was really unique. So you do an interview, right? With somebody. And uh, how do you know that they're actually telling you the truth? You ask them first questions about themselves. Hey, like, do, do you like yoga? Do you like uh, dancing? Do you like music? And you look for their eyes because they have a certain response in their eyes. And because it's really hard to fake because they're telling the truth. And then once you move on to the conversation or questions around their job, around their future plans, you look for that like eye response and it changes 
it changes. It's not the same if 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 they're going a little bit off track, and that's almost impossible to fake. And I've, this is the, the like the biggest thing I've heard about interviews. That makes sense, but it, it's so like you can tell. I think a lot of times when people are like genuinely excited about something, or when they're telling you what they want you to hear. Like another thing that I guess. So if that's kind of testing for the truth, another way you can almost like test for a lie is being like, why do you want this job? And like, cause they, whenever you ask someone why they want this job, I mean, maybe there's the exception that's gonna tell you like the truth, but I think every time they try to tell you what they think you wanna hear. And so like, even if they genuinely want the job for great reasons, when you ask that question, they're gonna give you like their, their ultimate lie answer. So maybe you wanna do both. You like, you ask them about yoga or like you ask them about their hobbies, see if they're looking one way and then you can also ask why do you want this job and you know they're going to give you like the ultimate fluff answer that they think you want and so you'll know how they respond what their fluff answers look like too that's a great interview <laughs> that's gonna be hard to pass though <laughs> i know <laughs> so you're the first time founder i'm gonna i'm curious you probably have given or taken a lot of advice hey do this do that kind of thing you raised a few rounds um what were some of the things that you have heard about being a first-time founder that were just missed, were not really true? Um, I, mean, I think that there's like a lot of things you see that are kind of these shoulds um, that may or may not be relevant to you. So um, like, especially early on, like my co-founder and I started and like, he's a product person and I'm a marketer and everyone's like, no, if you want to start a company, like you need to be a salesperson and a software developer. And we're like, close but that's not us <laughs> and you know even early like we didn't get into certain accelerators where they explicitly were like yeah you're not you're not a developer like we only accept teams that have technical founders on board um but i think like the truth is you just want to kind of lean into your strengths and that's gonna, what's going to like help you succeed so like specifically in that regard i think we had a little slower time starting out um because we had to find the perfect dev team but now like people think that our company, like our, I think our product is way stronger because we had a designer as a co-founder from the beginning and because we built marketing the product the whole time. So it's kind of like lean into your strengths and don't be like, like don't feel like you need to be a certain person or do a certain thing. Also don't feel bad when you see um, people put out like press announcements or say they raise a certain amount of funding. Cause like, you don't know, you don't know the story or the situation or what else was going on. And if you compare yourself to other people, you're always going to feel like you're behind um, or not doing something you should do. And there's a lot of stuff you genuinely should be doing. So you don't need to compare yourself to all the things that you think you should be doing. Right? Yeah. You don't know how much, uh, how much percentage of the company they gave up uh, even by getting to accelerated. Yeah. That could be, yeah, like that could be a factor. A, and, and sometimes it makes sense, right? Like we, like we didn't, so we didn't have a technical co-founder and instead we had to raise money early to hire the technical talent. But if you look at the amount of equity we gave up for all, like all the funding we've raised so far, it's still less than it would have been if we were to like split a third with a technical co-founder, way less. So, you know, you, you hear these expectations and I think, um, I think, you know, you got to know, like, what do I want to do when I start this company that's like very typical and not reinvent the wheel with, but also don't stress yourself too much to fit into a certain mold that you don't fit into, because maybe it's what makes you different. That's what's going to help you beat the competition and get ahead and stand out more in later funding rounds or, or grow mm -hmm. without funding, connect with customers. But also don't, don't, if you sit down at the table with Angel or whoever you're trying to raise money with, 
you better have more than one user or something, you know, like, so you have a, the right leverage, the right, the right conversation. And you're like, don't go, don't go there a little too early where you're there. Like, they will give you the term sheet and that's it. I think like, that's kind of important to be in the right, in the right position of the product, the company that the growth. So you're like, not just giving away like crazy amount. Yeah. Definitely. Definitely. And making sure that you're finding investors that like focus on what you're doing in your stage, or they might even give you different advice. Like if you're raising your first bit of funding and you talk to like a series A investor, like, I mean, if they're really cool, they're just going to tell you that like what you need to do to get there and be like, yo, we're way later. Like, but this is what you should be doing. Um, but I think a lot of times it could just like feel a little off and you're not sure why. So make sure you're talking to people that like haven't you know, if you don't, ha- if you only have an idea and you don't have anything else, like see who else has invested at the idea stage and only like talk to them or talk to the founders that have raised money first and then go into it that way. Um, otherwise you just end up having kind of weird conversations and you're not sure why. And it like, we kind of did that, like when we were raising and should have been more at the pre-seed stage, we're talking to seed investors and we we're wondering why, like, it just seemed like we weren't quite there. And then we started talking to pre-seed investors and we're like, oh, like, now we actually can answer their questions really, really well. And like, if anything, like we're in a really great spot, but before we felt like we weren't. So it's just about knowing like who you should be talking to and having the right conversations. How did you make sure that you are not, you are in the right, in the right spot in terms of this is the amount of equity you're okay to give, give out. And you're like hitting that maybe a threshold that you're comfortable with. Uh, with your angels, with your investors, because you said you you gave out less than the amount or less less equity than your let's say technical co-founder. What did you make? What did you look for in your company growth, in your users' growth, or in anything else to make sure like, hey, this makes sense. I think we could sit down and actually talk. Yeah, that's a really good question. So, um, I actually had a friend of mine who worked in VC, um, who worked more like at a Series B stage. She helped me kind of make a model of how things were going to like dilute at different rounds. So even when we were raising, this was even before like we did accelerate. So like super early, um, I was able to see like, well, how much are we going to raise at each kind of normal stage? She was telling me kind of like, you keep in mind how much you're going to give away, um, you know, maybe like 15, like 10 to 15% per round and how many rounds you need to do. And like, where do you want to be when you IPO or like make it all the way? So we're kind of able to back track um and see like how much we're able to give away now and then what also matters like in addition to the valuation is how much you're raising at that valuation so like there was um so even recently we are going to raise a certain amount at one higher valuation and we decided to raise a lower valuation so we could bring on like a certain investor we wanted to bring on but then we decided to raise like less so we're, we're giving away like you know, less of the company at that percentage. And we didn't really need the full amount anyway. So it makes sense. We're like, well, you know what? We'll be fine raising this amount at this valuation, but I'm not going to raise, you know, over a million at this valuation. Like that would be too much. So I think it's just about like, you know, one, make the full model. Don't just think about where you want to be for this round because you might have to raise another round and another round, another round. And like, you don't want to be IPOing with 2% of the company. So look at the whole, the whole journey. And then figure out like if you need to raise at a certain valuation, like whatever the market rate is for where you are, maybe if it's too low, just don't raise that much. Raise enough to help you to get to like the next big milestone that's going to help you raise more. Great way to think about it, really. 
uh, just plan ahead and uh, don't, and hopefully don't try to exit in two years. Like give, give yourself a little bit more time. Yeah. Things always take longer than you think too. Yeah. Like 10 years, I think maybe not 10, maybe eight. <laughs> uh, Bethany, what is your superpower? Besides my, um, my superpower. So I, I think that I, I'm really good at kind of optimizing processes, like kind of looking at the entire system and seeing, you know, here's where there's a hole, let's plug it. Here's where we need to, to double down and fill it up and just, you know, figuring out how to optimize within the system, um, which I think has been really helpful both um, one to like build a company and like figure out where we need to be hiring and optimizing, but also for like building the, the product to help our users because a lot of communication involves different stakeholders. And so being able to look at what their process looks like and where could there be friction points, either in onboarding or in like getting a video or sending a video to someone else. Um, I think like my, yeah, my superpowers helped like really build a, a better product and be able to help our customers fill gaps so they can actually get their videos out to their customers. We're almost at the end of our interview. I, uh, the last question I have is, is there anything I haven't asked you, you wish I did anything um, I could have missed or any final messages you'd love uh, to leave the audience with? Could be uh, a call to action. Yeah, that's the okay too. Yeah, I mean, well, I, I call to action. Hey, if you're building a company, try out Sunspar to, to connect with your customers or potential investors. Um, I would also say like one thing is just like a takeaway is like, you know, we talked about this a bit earlier, but really just have fun with it. Like, like this is, this is like the coolest thing to, to build a company and like, it can be stressful and hard, but like at a high level, like don't take yourself too seriously. Just like have fun, expect to make mistakes. So when they have it, don't sweat it too much, just learn and move on. And, um, and yeah, if anyone wants to like connect with me, like talk about founder stuff, feel free to reach out. My email is bethany at sunspark.com. Totally. And we'll link, uh, we'll link your LinkedIn um, profile link in show notes. So you guys can go ahead and connect with Bethany directly and send her a video. Hopefully that's gotta be a video. Yep. Send me a video. Perfect. Well, Bethany, thank you so much. This has been awesome to have you on the show. And uh, guys, for you listening, this is another Off the Records uh, episode with cool founders. And uh, we'll be back with more awesome, actionable takeaways, wisdom, all of this good stuff. We are proud.